Welcome back, everyone. If it works to have your video on, uh, I love to see people as we're as I'm talking, as we're interacting later. So if that can work to have your video on, that's great. So today, I want to explore the way that equanimity and compassion work beautifully together and how these qualities are so vital for our meditation practice, for our lives, and I would say, actually, uh, for the future of humanity and for our ability to be with our challenges in the next years. I could hardly think of two more fundamental qualities, equanimity and compassion, and it's also crucial to see how they work together, how they complement each other, how they, in a way, um, correct each other for some of the possible distortions of each. Last week, we explored equanimity. And today, I'll, I'll review some of what we covered. I'll review some about the nature of equanimity, how to cultivate equanimity, how to practice, and some of the possible uh, challenges of developing equanimity. You know, in, in particular, we'll see that equanimity has two major challenges. One is that equanimity can get overly cool, we might say, and get, get overly cool and overly aloof. It can get disconnected from the kind heart, and it can get disconnected from action and responsiveness. We can just be these, these cool, equanimous people a little bit distanced. And we'll see how compassion helps us correct that. And we'll look at compassion, which is the way, the very natural way scientists have really located the basis of compassion in the part of the brain. It's a natural capacity by which we almost like uh, have a kind of quivering or shaking in the presence of what is painful, whether from ourselves or others, and want to respond skillfully. And we'll see how we'll look into the nature of compassion and also see that uh, compassion has its challenges as well. One of the core compassion uh, challenges of compassion is something like burnout or overwhelm. Uh, being with what's difficult is too much at times, right? And that's a challenge. Also, sometimes we don't know how to be to, um, I don't know, see what's happening in perspective. We don't have wisdom in relationship to what's difficult or challenging. And this is where equanimity can really address both of those two issues. Equanimity helps us with uh, burnout, and it also helps us to bring wisdom to difficult situations. So I don't know. Um, the, I was, a phrase just came to mind. This is a, a match made in heaven, so to speak, <laughs> right? It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful connection. So I'll talk some about the nature of, of equanimity, how to practice, the distortions, similar way about compassion, its nature, how to develop it, and then some of the possible issues, problems, distortions, and then how uh, equanimity and compassion uh, go together. And again, I, I do want to say that, again, re maybe repeat that these qualities are so crucial for both our own lives and I think uh, the ability of humanity to be with our most challenging issues and concerns. These are beautiful. And so first on equanimity. It's really, a, uh, uh, equanimity is the quality, as I mentioned last time, of, of balance. You know, the, the 
Some of the words that we use in uh, come from the Buddhist tradition really translate as balance. It's a, ultimately, it's a deep and wise and heartfelt balance with whatever comes up. That's what equanimity is, a beautiful, um, a beautiful quality. And um, we can use, have those first terms now, uh, Carlita, that we were going to use. Um, last time we looked at some of the key terms, and I wanted to bring them in. Uh, upeka um, um, came to mean also balance, but it originally meant to look over. So it was a sense of having perspective, we might say even a kind of wisdom. Another term that's used in the tradition, this is from the Pali language, hatata means to stand in the middle of all this. Again, a sense one can be in the middle of everything and still be balanced. And again, some of the qualities also come out with the uh, English term, which we don't, in, in my experience, I seldom hear anyone use the word equanimity, except if they're talking about Buddhist practice. And it comes from uh, a Latin term, which has the roots, uh, two roots, having an even mind, and then the word for mind or soul, which is animus, which is like the word animated, which has the same, same sense. Um, so this is something like um, having an even mind or having an even um, consciousness or awareness is, is what equanimity is about. <clears throat> Thank, thanks, Carlita. Um, a quote from a person who's written some beautiful words on equanimity, the uh, German monk who lived in Sri Lanka most of his life, Nayanaponikatera, said, equanimity is perfect, unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight. Last time I looked at seven core qualities of equanimity, and I just want to mention them again and, and go through them uh, briefly. One of them is balance. You know, the first quality I already mentioned, equanimity is about balance. It's about being balanced with whatever experience comes our way. Not so easy, right? And so a major way that we develop equanimity, as we saw in the guided meditation, is to see what knocks us out of balance. A lot of the way that we develop equanimity is by both in meditation and in daily life, being willing to be conscious of and aware of what's challenging or difficult or what takes us out of balance. Uh, and we can do that probably with most intentionally in our meditations. I'm sitting there, you know, something happened yesterday, it, you know, I'm angry, disturbed, whatever. I stay with my anger and try to bring mindfulness and maybe compassion to it. Not always easy, but that's a way, you know, if I, if I bring mindfulness to anger over time, I will know anger better and I'll be able to be more balanced with anger rather than having anger simply trigger, let's say, me blaming myself or blaming someone else. I can be with the anger uh, the energy of anger, be with it in the body and so forth. You know, I think I've mentioned from time to time a story that, you know, a time when, when I learned a lot, when I was working with a boss and had meetings with him, and sometimes he would say things which I would get, you know, to use a Buddhist technical term, pissed off about. <laughs> and uh, I would get angry and I would find myself in those meetings just going into being what I came to call, um, you know, I would just withdraw emotionally, right? And I would go into emotionally withdrawn sense of moral superiority, which I found comforting, right? And, um, but as I practiced with that, I came to be able to be with it more in the moment, to maybe be with my anger, you know, and that permitted me actually to respond, to be, respond skillfully. And that's a lot of what we learn in terms of equanimity, learning to be with what's uh, difficult. There's, um, and so there, I, I want to encourage to develop equanimity 
both in meditation and daily life, we have to be willing to hang out with what is uh, difficult, what leads us to reactivity, whatever, anger, sadness, grief, being judgmental, blaming ourselves or others, the whole show. We have to be willing to open to it so it doesn't simply, uh, you know, take us away in a habitual way. Not easy, right? That's how we cultivate equanimity. A second quality I mentioned is evenness. Increasingly being able to be with everything in a similar way. Oh, I'm sitting. Oh, oh, very pleasant, peaceful. And then the next moment the anger comes up and equanimity has an evenness. Oh, pleasant. Oh, anger. You know, and doesn't... Um, doesn't complain so much, just it can be increasingly with what's there. And last time I gave uh, a haiku from the 17th century from the great uh, Japanese haiku writer Basho that for me illustrated this uh, evenness. And uh, I'll, I'll give it again. Remember, it's brief. Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. That was my equanimity haiku right? Because he's, he's even. Okay. Yeah, here I am. They're fleas. Okay. They're lice. Okay. The horse pissed right near my pillow. Luckily, not on the pillow, but anyway, uh, he, didn't, he didn't say exactly. So, but there's an evenness to it. And we, we learned that. A third quality that I mentioned was unshakability, that I'm, we become increasingly unshakable. And Last time I mentioned the teaching that helps us to study this, which I also brought up in the guided meditation. So we can go, Carlita, to the uh, screen share with the eight worldly winds. These are the qualities that tend to knock us around. Um, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. You know, And so part of developing equanimity is we notice the times when these are predominant. And we look out for them because these are what can knock us around. So as we become more and more familiar with these, we become more and more unshakable. You know, and so we look for what, uh, you know, we get interested in seeing what knocks around our equanimity. I've, um, I've taken as an equanimity practice going to the dentist. And this may be your equanimity practice too, right? So I'm sitting there in the chair and a six inch long needle is coming my way, right? Anyone have that experience? Right. Right. A six inch needle is coming my way. Time for equanimity practice. Let me notice, just let me notice my body tensing. Let me just study that, right? So you can use when, when there are situations like this, which are in the workable range. And I want to really again, make a point I often make, we need to distinguish between what's workable and which, what's manageable and what's too much. You know, when something is too much, you know, the level of intensity is overwhelming or overly activating, that's not a time for equanimity practice. That's a time to do what brings us back to balance, often to get out of that experience, right? So that's a crucial distinction for cultivating equanimity. A fourth quality is understanding and wisdom. You know, we, that equanimity brings in the ability to see clearly, to notice uh, causes and conditions, to have the sense of, um, okay, this is happening for a particular reason. So we can have, uh, have more a quality of wisdom. Again, the danger of that, it could get overly cerebral. We want to be careful with that. But there, you know, there is equanimity brings in the sense of understanding. Oh, you know, I can see why this person and me or this person and me are having a difficult time, right? I can see something in my background, this person's background. And that understanding quality can help with equanimity. It doesn't, you know, forgive everything or it doesn't mean I don't respond but it gives me some, you know, some further balance. A fifth quality is faith. And here I think I want to bring in um, another uh, video audio 
Um, last time, I played uh, right near the beginning something from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, you know, that brought out his quality of equity. Last time I played what is often called the mountaintop speech, the speech one day before he was uh, murdered, right? And uh, today I want to play another uh, incredible reflection from, from Dr. King. And I think I'll introduce it, Carlita, and just let you know right when to, um, right when to start it, okay? So this, is, this comes from his time in Montgomery, Alabama, 1955, with the uh, Montgomery bus boycott. Many of you know this was the boycott that started when uh, Rosa Parks refused to get off the, you know, the front of the bus in Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, Dr. King was a new minister in town, and you know, somewhat surprisingly, he became the leader. He was asked to become the leader of the boycott movement. And this is um, this kind of the situation that I'm referring to. And what we'll have are Dr. King's reflections about this quite a number of years afterwards. But the situation occurred. He came home late from work. Um, it was midnight. And his um, wife and his daughter were both asleep. And he got a telephone call. And he had been getting many menacing telephone calls. He didn't have answering machines then, right? So he got this menacing call, and the caller warned him, saying, we are tired of you and your mess. If you aren't out of this town in three days, we're going to blow out your brains and blow out your, your house. And so the, it, you know, this has happened many times, but this, this time it happened in a way, and I'm bringing this out in terms of this was an experience that he had, difficult one, that led to greater equanimity and faith. So let's play the, the audio now. So we don't have the audio, Carlita. Sorry about that. One second. Let me get this queued up again. Some reason that night it got to me. I turned over and I tried to go to sleep, but I couldn't sleep. Frustrated, and I got up and went back. The audio is not working well, Carlita. Thinking the coffee would give me a little relief. Then I started thinking about minutes. Think we're okay now. On the theology and philosophy that I had just studied in the university, trying to give philosophical and theological reasons for the existence and the reality of sin and evil. But the answer didn't quite come there. Sat there and thought about beautiful little daughter who had just been born about a month earlier. We have four children now, but we only had one thing. She was the darling of my life. I'd come in night after night and see that little gentle smile. I sat at that table thinking about that little girl and thinking about the fact that she could be taken away from any minute. I started thinking about a dedicated, devoted, and loyal wife who was over there asleep. She could be taken from me. I could be taken from her. I got to the point that I couldn't take it any longer. I was weak. Something said to me, you can't call on daddy now. He's up in Atlanta, 175 miles away. <laughs> you can't even call on mama now. A little louder if you can. You gotta call on that something and that person that your daddy used to tell you about. <laughs> that 
power that can make a way out of nowhere. I discovered then that religion had to become real to me and I had to know God for myself. I bowed down over that cup of coffee. I never will forget. Oh, yes, I prayed a prayer and I prayed out loud that night. Say, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. Think I'm right? I think the cause that we represent is right. Yeah. Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now, I'm faltering, I'm losing my courage. I can't let the people see me like this because if they see me weak and losing my courage, they will begin to get weak. Seems at that moment that I but hear an inner voice saying, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you, even unto the end of the world. Have we lost the sound? That was the end of the segment. Oh, that's the end. Okay. Um, thanks, Carlita. So he said, um, maybe just to sit for a moment with that experience. He said that after he had this inner experience, and he he spoke of it later as also, you know, being he hearing the voice of Jesus speaking to him, and saying, "I will stay with you, I will stay with you always." And he said, as that happened, his fears almost instantly began to go, and his uncertainty ended. There was something like a, you know, being with that experience, some kind of faith developed that gave him equanimity. And what happened later, three days later, his house was bombed. When he was at church, he was given word about the bombing. You know, his family, I think no one was home. His family was okay. And his, the, the people at the uh, church, and there was a kind of a press conference, they were amazed, they said, at what they called his uh, steady and calm presence. And later he said that his experience a few nights before had given him the strength to face the bombing, we would say with a kind of equanimity. So that's, that's a fairly intense example of this quality of faith. I'll just mention two other qualities briefly, but I, I wanted to uh, to play that for you because that's when I heard that maybe 20, 30 years ago, um, it's, it has stayed with me, you know, that, that story. You can look that up on YouTube. Look up, uh, you know, put in uh, Dr. King, cup of coffee. <laughs> that's, that's how he sometimes talks about it. And so... There can be a sense, even with challenging things, a sense of joy and warmth can be there. And as we'll, as we'll see also, a seventh quality of responsiveness. Equanimity is responsive. It's, it's active. So we looked at the practices in the guided meditation that can help us to develop equanimity. You know, I mentioned in the guided meditation that developing more stability of mind, developing more concentration can play a big role. It means that we don't get quite so knocked around by all our thoughts and all our experiences. Developing a basic mindfulness plays a big role. And then increasingly open 
to challenging experiences when we're reactive. That it will be how equanimity develops, bringing mindfulness to uh, when I get reactive, when I get judgmental or blaming or angry or confused. Just, you know, just naming confusion and bringing the mindfulness to it, particularly looking out for uh, moments of reactivity, looking for those eight worldly winds and so forth. You know, what happens is we develop increasingly a kind of inner center that can be with whatever comes up, you know. So I mentioned uh, the, you know, the two challenges of equanimity practice are number one, that as we develop uh, more and more equanimity, we're at risk of having it be overly cool and overly separate from action and being responsive. Those are the dangers. Those are kind of the occupational hazards of developing equanimity. In some ways, occupational hazards of being a meditator, right? They're things we all have to uh, work with. You know, does the does my cultivation of equanimity lead at times to what in the uh, traditional text is called a near enemy of equanimity, which is indifference. You know, I'm sitting here equanimous, you know, maybe somewhat at a distance. You know, it could look sometimes like complacency or resignation, right? And those are uh, distortions or near enemies. We want to look out for that. You know, like, oh, you know, where I, where I get attached to my calm, right? I get attached to my being balanced, right? That could lead me to be a little disconnected from others or, and, and not to act. So we want to look out for that. And then, you know, in a, in a way, it's equanimity gets disconnected, we might say, from the kind heart. So we're going to want to remember to do that. And this is where I'm going to be bringing in compassion practice as a very skillful way to really connect our equanimity with the kind heart. And, you know, you know this can also happen for social and cultural reasons. Uh, uh, historically, there's often been, you know, in mainstream Western societies, often a disconnection from wisdom and the kind heart. You know, and, you know, you know, some of the poets have said, we got to go with the kind heart. And others have said, we got to go with, you know, wisdom, reason, rationality. And there's often a split. You know, what we're looking for is to have the two connected, have wisdom, clear thinking, and the kind heart all integrated. But we, it's good to know that there are some, almost like social pressures, you know, and historically those have sometimes been split. Some of you know a famous line from the French philosopher Pascal. He says, the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. But he's kind of documenting a split where, you know, a kind of thinking or reason became overly cut off from the emotions and the heart. And he was saying the heart carries its wisdom. Well, we're looking for both. That's what equanimity can bring in. And then there's the also the way that we can uh, be disconnected from action at times, that we can be a little bit aloof and distanced from, with our equanimity. So we want to we want to look out for that, you know. And so a way of remedying that is to talk about equanimity and compassion. Compassion can bring in both of these remedies, as it were. Compassion can bring in the heart, the kind heart, it also brings in the imperative of responding to what's painful or difficult. So I'll talk more, I'll talk about compassion. Um, first of all, yeah, yeah. Okay, let me, uh, let me go to, let me go to compassion now. So as I mentioned, uh, Compassion is a quality which has to do with almost like the trembling of the heart. You know, the, some of the words in the original language like karuna, or there's another one, anukampa, have to do with a kind of quivering or trembling of the heart in the presence of what's difficult. So what that means is that there's kind of a natural ability 
to resonate and enter into others' difficulty or our own difficulty and be able to, on the basis of that quivering, respond. So we have both the heart quality and then the action components. And so we practice with this uh, compassion. Again, compassion is taken to be very natural. When we have enough balance of mind, we open to what's difficult or painful, and there's a natural quivering. And you can feel this sometimes when you're just hanging out with something that's painful or difficult. You can, how many can relate to that? You know, that, that you can have that kind of experience. And yet we, with compassion, we stay with it. So we have to be willing to go into what's difficult or painful. You know, that's part of compassion practice. Again, part of mindfulness practice. This is a poem from uh, uh, David White called The Well of Grief. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface of the well of grief, turning downwards through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water, cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. So it's saying that unless we're willing to open to what's difficult, we won't really get the, um, the jewels that are connected with compassion. There are some beautiful images of compassionate presence, which come especially from the Chinese tradition. So I want to bring in the, uh, the first slide of Kuan Yin. This is uh, Kuan Yin from the Chinese tradition. This is, uh, this is from the 15th or 16th century. Uh, this is Kuan Yin, who is uh, really, uh, in a way, a kind of transgender being in India, uh, Avalokiteshvara was the kind of the archetype of compassion and was male, went to Tibet, was both male and female, was also Tara, and went to China and became female. And so Kuan Yin is said to be she who hears the cries of the world. She who is, will, is able to be there for everyone in the moments of darkness. <clears throat> So in a moment, we'll see uh, two other images of Kuan Yin, but let me say a little bit more about practicing compassion, and we'll have some of these other images. And so we can practice compassion in a few different ways. One is that it's, as we saw in the meditation, it's a very natural quality that develops with mindfulness practice. When we're with what's painful or difficult, there is a natural way that compassion arises, you know, as we heard from people said, talking about that trembling of the heart, you know, that we notice that. And compassion develops naturally just from being with what's painful, whether it's our own experience or we visit someone who's having grief or difficulty, there's, and we're just present and notice what's going on in ourselves, notice what's going on with the other. Compassion develops naturally. And so we have to be willing to be with what's difficult or painful. Again, like in that poem, The Well of Grief, we have to be willing to open to it. And so we can also develop compassion very much the way we did in the guided meditation with that three-step practice from Kristin Neff, a kind of a heart practice where we had step one, acknowledge this is painful or hard. Step two, we um, recognize that this is shared by other humans and maybe even non-humans. And number three, we offer kind words. So we can use this specific practice, offering kind words to ourselves or to others. And many of you know there is a compassion practice, very much like loving-kindness practice. One way it's done is we repeat phrases to um, ourself in relationship to others or relationship to ourself. May you be free of um, suffering and the roots of suffering. You know, or I care about what's difficult for you. 
May you have as much ease with what's difficult as possible. And we can do this repetitively as a way to cultivate compassion. Let's have one of the other images of Kuan Yin, the second. This is, uh, again, this is Kuan Yin from the uh, 18th century. Again, for, for many people, uh, Kuan Yin would be the being through which they can access compassion. So another way of practicing would be to remember Kuan Yin and let the inspiration of Kuan Yin uh, kind of be an invocation of compassion. And I know several people who do this, you know, several people whose practice I know, they work with a kind of Kuan Yin meditation. And there are different forms of that which one can work with. <clears throat> so we can let go of that. And when we're ready, Carlita, we can go with the third one. But I'll, maybe I'll give a, a preface to that. So when you're ready, we can bring that up. <clears throat> and so those are some of the uh, those are some of the practices and the challenges that come with uh, cultivating compassion. I want to name uh, actually three of them. Uh, one of them is that, and this is the one that's named traditionally, is that our compassion gets mixed in with a certain amount of superiority. Uh, that we have what's called pity that compassion can be a little distorted and becomes like pity. I'm better than this person. I have compassion for this poor person. That's not authentic compassion because of the distance. Anyone notice that sometimes in your own compassion? Right. So we want to, we want to identify that as a possible distortion. Another one I named is that there can be some kind of uh, burnout. Um, we can get overwhelmed with compassion. And again, equanimity can be a balance for that. And a third distortion is that we kind of, we get confused. We don't know how to act. And again, equanimity brings in the wisdom factor and can help. And so when we're ready, Carlita, with that last image of Kuan Yin, this is from the 17th century. And by the way, I I got these images. I went to a wonderful exhibit at the, um, I think it was the, uh, it was the main art museum in, uh, in uh, New York City. Uh, and they had an exhibit on the sacred in Chinese art. And they had a special exhibit on Kuan Yin. I brought back all these images of Kuan Yin. So thank you. Yeah, Carly, did you remember what the main, what's the main museum in New York, if I, we could call it that? I'm blanking on the name. There's the Guggenheim. Uh, that's a big one. Oh, Guggenheim. Jason and I both said it. No, it's not the Guggenheim, Christine. Not the, the Metropolitan Museum, that's it. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Victoria. Yeah, it's the, the Metropolitan Museum. And they have this wonderful exhibit. And let's go back to the image now. And in this image, you can see Kuan Yin from the 17th century with a thousand arms. And um, let's see. <clears throat> and what's interesting here is that the thousand arms each have an eye. I don't know if it's, I think we don't quite have enough detail here to see it, but maybe you can see little dots on the arms. And this is Kuan Yin with a thousand arms. And what this signifies is that the eyes are the more receptive dimension of compassion, kind of the trembling. And the arms or the hands are the action component. So com compassion is always both receptive and active. So this is really crucial. And this will make a difference for equanimity. Okay, so we can we can let go of that. And now we'll go, I'll, I'll finish by talking about how equanimity and compassion connect with each other. And what I think is that they really have ways of helping to address the typical distortions of either of them. And so we we can have uh, equanimity can help with the the burnout or the imbalance or the getting knocked around with compassion. 
It also brings in the wisdom dimension so that compassion gets balanced. So it's really wise um, if we have any issues with either of these to practice both of them at the same time. Practice compassion and equanimity. And they will tend to mix with each other. One of my Tibetan teachers, Mingya Rinpoche, said, if you do two practices in proximity to each other, they will mingle. <laughs> and so that's, that's good to know. So do compassion and equanimity together, they will mingle. And so the, on the other side, compassion linked with equanimity brings in the kind heart. And it also brings in the principle of action. So it will tend really to balance out any of the problems that arise with equanimity. So you can see how this is a natural, a natural and very, very beautiful uh, combination. So let me finish with, uh, let me finish just with a, a few ways of, of talking again about that balance. You know, that, that um, compassion will address the disconnection from the heart that is sometimes there with equanimity and the disconnection from action. Equanimity will address the, the, uh, the pity, the burnout, and the lack of, lack of wisdom. It will, it will give guidance. And in, in doing so, in talking about um, equanimity and compassion, we're really echoing one of the most ancient ways of talking about all of these teachings and practices. And many of you know that it's sometimes been said throughout the tradition of Buddhist practice, and I think we find this in other traditions, that what we want to uh, bring together is ultimately wisdom and compassion. And it's sometimes said that the, the Dharma or the teachings and practices are like a bird that flies with two wings. Both wings are necessary. One wing is wisdom. The other wing is compassion. That's, that's, again, that's been talked about as the core way of understanding. It's a bird that flies, needs the two wings. A contemporary update that I learned from um, a Vietnamese friend named uh, Thich Minh Duc, who was, a, who was a, a Dharma heir of Thich Nhat Hanh. And we, we worked together for a number of years. And he was, he said that in the Vietnamese tradition, they felt a need to modify that bringing together of wisdom and compassion, or we could say bringing together of equanimity and uh, compassion. And this came out of the 1930s when they were in the anti-colonial struggle. And uh, Thich Minh Duc said that the Vietnamese began to say, we need, we need not just wisdom and compassion, but we need a third aspect, which is courage. And I like to think of courage like as the body of the, of the bird. We have the two wings, and then we have the body, and we have courage. And so they said we need all three, wisdom, compassion, and courage. And courage especially also brings out this action component. And so I can't think of any better guidance for our meditation and our daily lives than having this sense of grounding in equanimity, bringing in the wisdom and compassion, and bringing this into our daily lives and our action with courage. If we had to think of three ways just to remember, what are my intentions for the day? Bring in equanimity, compassion, and then courage. So I'll leave us with those and invite those uh, for the rest of our lives. Okay. So let's sit for a few moments, just let everything settle. And see if there's a reflection that you have or a sharing, a question, see what comes to you.
This could be something you want to share with the group or maybe just for yourself that you want to follow up on your own. So let's go to our discussion time. And before we go there, let me just say uh, thank you so much, Carlita, for all your equanimity with the uh, <laughs> equanimity with the screen shares and the video and all that. Thank you so much. Yay. We're developing equanimity for everyone, right? <laughs> okay. and, uh, and so let me invite any discussion. And let me ask everyone, if you speak, to be relatively on the brief side, so we can make room for um, a number of people. Okay, uh, please, Harrison, please. Um, um, can you hear me? I can, yeah. Okay, um, I just wanted to say that the, the courage part really like helped and sort of synthesized things for me at the end, and I was having, during this sit, uh, it was one of the sits where nothing is quite settling, you know, and I was yeah. having this like really like anxious, tight breathing oh, the yeah. whole time. Yeah. It, I, I was reminded of during it was it was during the the meta retreat that you led in uh, the beginning of twenty twenty, I guess yeah. January twenty twenty. Oh, yeah. And I remember there was a few. Sits and one in particular where I was just having that like really anxious breathing. I felt really hard to breathe, and it's hard when you're in the meditation hall and you don't want to like get up and run around, you know. Yeah. Um, but I was trying to sort of invite this. Uh, I think of it almost as like a very still or slow courage of like a tree, a very large tree. Yeah. The sort of uprightness and uh, flexibility. Strength. Oh, beautiful. Um, that yeah. was really helpful for me with those anxieties. So, thank that's, you for bringing that in that's, again. That's great, Harrison. You know, I really love you know something I didn't mention that can really make a difference for equanimity. Uh, you mentioned the courage, but I was thinking the way you did it with um, an, an image that can you know like the image of a tree that can really make a huge difference. We can have you know we each work in different ways, but to have an image of something that represents equanimity for you, you know, I, you know, or, or maybe um, something that gives you courage or tranquility. I, I was remembering what just came to mind was, I remember having some major dental surgery and uh, like a while ago and, and going in there and just having, you know, I was uh, working with someone who was almost like a hypnotherapist. And she said, when you're right, right when you're going to the surgery, bring an image that really helps you gain stability. And I had an image of just the land right near where I was living, you know, where there were forests and trees. And I would have an image of that. And that just, that totally, like, like in your example, it really helped the reactive, nervous, anxious thoughts really settle into balance. So that can be, that can be really helpful. And then even, you know, there can have a, a core of equanimity that can help us then later be with the difficult material. So thanks for that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Sylvia, please. Hi, Donna. Um, thank Hi. you for bringing up that, you know, practicing equanimity, you can become disconnect all indifference. Um, when you mentioned that, um, I just had some experience that on Monday, um, I went to my appointments and, um, of course I, I felt like I wasn't treated right. For one thing, I was asked to use the men's rooms to change. Yeah. Um, and I came home and I felt really, I didn't even notice until I talked to my husband and I was like, yeah, did I get taken advantage of? And I felt really bad that I was like, why am I indifferent? Like I should have speak up. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then you also mentioned the compassions and I was like, okay, I'm gonna, you know, just sending some compassion to this radiation technologist. Maybe he has a busy day, you know, he just want to get things done and, you know, yeah. maybe he well and he be, um, happy. Um, and you know, in his days, 
And it, it also kind of calmed me down a little bit too, that I felt like I was not um, speaking up for myself. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great example, Sylvia. Really. <laughs> That's, uh, how many can relate to that? <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a lot there, you know, I think like, you know, maybe noticing uh, how, you know, even you can be, you can meditate with it and maybe part of you doesn't want to deal with it. Right. And, but, but the, the true equanimity would be active, you know, like to speak up. Right. And to notice that. And then the compassion, I heard that compassion, you know, was mixed with a kind of understanding and, and wisdom. Oh, this might, you know, these might've been what the person was going through at the time. Right. And I can have some compassion that, I, can, I still want to speak up, right? But I can have some compassion there. So I'm hearing all of what we've been exploring right there in your example. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, we have uh, um, Sandra. Am I pronouncing your name right? Sandra or Sandra? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Thank you for the practice and for the teachings. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, I might need to sit with this to articulate it in my own mind, um, but what I'm, I'll, I'll try to articulate my thoughts now. What I struggle with is um, with distinguishing between wisdom and, um, for lack of a better term, delusional thinking or habitual thinking, yeah, yeah. which which can be so uh, can seem so. Um, true um, and this might just be something I need to practice to yeah. sit with or work with equanimity more yeah. to bring forth true wisdom but I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about yeah, that. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a great great question uh, thank you thank you Sandra, it's really really, really crucial you know because you know, you know, how do we how do we know that something seems like the wisdom coming out of equanimity as opposed to what you were calling delusional thinking or we could call it rationalization or call it by different names probably. And, and so what comes to mind is that um, delusional thinking or rationalization probably will have some qualities that true wisdom doesn't have. For example, uh, it'll tend to be repetitive. You know, if, if we're constantly repeating something, it's a, there's a good chance that it's coming out of reactivity. Wisdom is, has a, you know, more of a, a peaceful aspect. You know, we just think of time, you just kind of know something. You don't need to repeat it necessarily 50 times in your mind, right? <laughs> right, and so looking, so, you know, the, the delusional thinking is going to be reactive. It'll have qualities of repetitive re uh, repetition. If you look, if you study it with, if you notice it with mindfulness, you may notice that there may be some anxiety connected with it or some emotions connected with it. And you may notice in your body, you know, that the, the wisdom can come out of a kind of that balance of equanimity. So those would be some things to look at. And also, you could ask from a more personal view, um, you know, is this, is this kind of like habit energy that's familiar to me? You know, kind of the answer that I'm giving for this situation. Um, and there are also uh, people, if you're willing to ask people who know you well, they may have some insight also. <laughs> I'm joking a little bit because often... Uh, People who know us well know our habitual tendencies, right? And um, so that can be helpful. Um, so those are those are a few things that come to mind. Um, and you know, and and so maybe the last thing to say maybe is that if what you're calling possibly delusional thinking tends to be give you an answer that's close to one of those near enemies that I mentioned for equanimity or compassion, that would be a reason to look more deeply. In other words, if the answer seems to be, you know, uh, don't act, right? Or something like that, stand, you know, 
stand away, right? Could be a, could be a wise response, but it also could be, you know, we want, might want to look more carefully if it seems something like the, uh, you know, the, the near enemies with equanimity of um, indifference or, uh, you know, so you can ask the question, is the, you know, maybe this is a clearer way to say it, is the kind heart present? You know, with what I'm calling, you know, because if it's wise thinking and not delusional, you'll have the compassion and the kind heart there. So that's a longer answer than I was thought I would give. But <laughs> thanks very much. Thank you. Okay, looks like we have Abby now. These are wonderful questions. They really, really fill things out. Thank you so much. Wonderful examples, questions, observations. Uh, Abby, please. Hi, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Um, I had a question. I guess I just first of all, I didn't really, I don't think I fully understand the background around the term delusional. I think that is very confusing for me. So I would have to do more research in terms of okay. how that concept on a wider scale is used in this tradition. Okay. Um, I think of it as a very different term, but um, okay. So my question, I'm sorry, I just wanted to like understand that. So I think I'm going to on my own do some research. Okay. Um, my question is about unmanageability of an experience um, of discomfort or something of the like. Yeah. So like the threshold, like you're saying, you know, this giant needle at the dentist's office or um, maybe an internal experience. Sorry, I wasn't really ready. I should have phrased this more carefully. Um so like, okay, when something is uncomfortably, unmanageably painful yeah. or suffering and, you know, inciting suffering, then we move away from the experience in a more literal sense. Um, I think my question is around the threshold or the line between use our ability to cultivate self-compassion, use our equanimity skills yeah. and also avoid that you know, unmanageable line. Well, what if it's unavoidable? What if we're having an internal experience like, you know, shared by other humans or non-humans, the ocean, you know, an right. ocean of emotion, if you will. Sorry for the rhyme. And then um, we can't avoid it. So I guess I would love to hear yeah. anything you have on um, the threshold between where is it unmanageable and when to step yeah. away if we cannot step away. Yeah, really a crucial question for all of this. Um, and um, the response is going to be partly personal, you know, because uh, we want to, you know, in general, I'm talking about that threshold in terms of uh, workability. Can I stay, can I stay mindful enough to stay with it? You know, and we may, we may be able to quantify it, you know, maybe it means 40, 50% being mindful and 50% being a little bit lost. And so it's that, that I'm not trying to suggest that to be exact, but there's, there's something about workability and we can confuse ourselves with that, you know, um, you know, that we can know that we're kind of, you know, let's say I'm really, really enraged, right? I can kind of know I'm angry, but I still may be more or less lost in it. So I would say that's beyond the workable range. So I don't know if I can quantify it easily, but something about relative workability and, you know, an ability to not be dominated and lost in whatever is happening. Something, something like that. You know, when I, when I, when I've studied uh, trauma, there's, there's often been a, um, kind of a, the threshold is sometimes defined in terms of level of activation in the body. And there's a certain level, you know, and I've sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes seen it portrayed something like this. If you can see, the, the horizontal line is the threshold and we may be getting activated, but if there's a possibility of deactivation, then below that line, it's somewhat workable. At a certain point, the physical activation, this is <clears throat> related to trauma, is too much and it's no longer workable. So I think that can be true physically, it can be true emotionally, and it's not, it's not something I can say in an exact way. And so, but it's, it's, the, it's an important question to ask is really, um, you know, is it workable? And I think even when something is happening that's too much, like you were saying, 
or let me, let me back up. One model that can be helpful that I sometimes offer here that's widely used, it's like a learning model. It's a model of three zones. There's the comfort zone, the discomfort zone, and the overwhelm zone. What we're talking about as not workable is the overwhelm zone, sometimes called the panic zone, <laughs> right? And the discomfort zone is still workable. And we can actually do tremendous learning in the discomfort zone, but we don't really learn anything in the overwhelm zone. And so if, maybe last few things to say, if this is happening in the present moment, there's still ways of shifting out of it if it's overwhelming, even if it's happening right now. If it's happening at the level of the body, there are different practices that we can do, you know, that take us out of the overwhelming experience. Not always easy, but there are uh, practices we do, such as, you know, if I encounter someone in meditation who is having like a kind of overwhelming experience, I would say, open your eyes. These, these are, these are trauma-related techniques. Open your eyes. Go to something that's really pleasant. Go to something that's really pleasing and soothing. You know, bring your eyes around to something in the environment. You know, maybe bring your attention to your hands and your feet. You know, something like that. Take a walk. Talk to someone. Doesn't always work. <laughs> these don't always work, but though these are the things to do. So we can use these tools uh, even when they're happening right in the present moment. Because because as long as we're dominated by something in the overwhelm zone, um, we, we want to, as much as possible, you know, move out of the overwhelm zone. You know, does that get at a lot of what you were asking, Abby? Um, yeah, I mean, I was also, could I clarify really quickly? That was so helpful, Donald. Thank yeah, you so much. Um, I was also thinking about, and I'm so sorry, like maybe um, like an example of Dr. King, like, maybe um, great and unworkable pain or even circumstances of pain, whether it's internal or external. Yeah. And then maybe it just necessitates greater compassion and equanimity. Like if you need, like what he was saying with this experience of kind of that, that's divine. Right. That's, that's right. Yeah. Sorry, no, I'm so sorry. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Abby. Thanks for bringing that last point up. Cause it's something like sometimes there are just circumstances which have us a lot in the overwhelm zone could be, you know, whatever, an injury, an illness, something happening socially, right? And how do we work with those when, and then I think we use the resources of inner practices and uh, community become really, really crucial. How do we, how do we help other people hold it so they don't feel alone? So, you know, so there are a lot of, a lot of places we could go there. So thanks for bringing up that last point. That really helps, helps complement it. Okay. Um, I think I'm going to going to finish up now. Sorry, Mary. Uh, if you could say what you wanted to say in one sentence, I'd be okay. But if it's, I think we're a little bit over time. Yeah. Sure. Uh, thanks, Donald. I just wanted to ask if you can summarize the practice for equanimity okay. versus passion versus courage, because it all seems the same practice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Great. Thank, thank you for that. Okay. okay. It's a good way to close. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mary. Um, yeah, because what I'll be doing is inviting our own practice. So sort of a review. Um, general stability of mind will help with both practices. So we want to keep on developing more stability, more concentration. Mindfulness will also help with both practices, but it'll, it'll tend to work in a little bit different way. So strengthening our mindfulness. And then for equanimity practice, um, we want to see that which uh, tend, we tend to be reactive with. Work with the eight worldly winds or work with reactivity, work with my mind tending to not be balanced with what's pleasant or what's painful. We want to look out for those and bring attention to them. But I think, Mary, your, your, your point about them being really um, what uh, interrelated is, is actually an important, helpful point in that um, as I'm mindful, for example, of something painful, I will develop more equanimity, but I'll also tend to develop more compassion if I stay with it, right? 
oh, this is hard, right? Oh, other people experience this, right? And so we, you know, and so ultimately we'll, we'll see that the equanimity and the compassion, when they become mature, are integrated, right? And so we might do mindfulness practice with painful experience, and we'll see that we're developing equanimity, and we're also developing compassion, right? So we can see both of those, both of those developing. With equanimity practice, the instructions can be look out particularly for that which knocks you around. And with compassion practice, it can be let me be, let me be willing to open to what's difficult. The compassion practice is also a little different in that we can do that three-step practice and actually offer kind words. May you, may you hold this with ease. May you be with this difficult experience with kindness and with equanimity, right? I could invite that going through a difficult time. And so um, there is some overlap and ultimately mature equanimity is deeply compassionate and mature compassion has a lot of equanimity, right? And, uh, and I think, you know, the courage part of it really comes from being willing just to over and over again go into what's challenging. Maybe we're helped by an image like Harrison brought up, an image of a tree or could be an image of someone who represents courage for us. Maybe, maybe you bring Dr. King to mind. Maybe you remember the, the uh, two... Uh, videos that we, we, we heard or saw today and last time. So that can help with courage as well. <clears throat> and so let me, let me invite us to ask ourselves, how do I develop more equanimity and compassion? See what comes to you for the next period of time. You could use the next week, the next two weeks, and have a focus on equanimity and compassion if you wish. So see what comes to you, what calls you right now. Take a minute or so. If it works for you, you could think of equanimity and compassion every morning. Bring it up. Okay. So I'll finish with the dedication of merit. May our time together be of benefit to us. May it be a benefit to others. Ultimately, may it be a benefit to all beings, knowing that all beings includes us. So thank you, everyone. Thanks especially to Carlita. Yay, Carlita. Yay, Yay, Yay Carlita. Carlita. And feel free to, uh, to uh, unmute, and you could say goodbye, say thanks to uh, Carlita. Thanks, everyone, so much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. We'll do our, I'll do my yeah, goodbye. Bye-bye, okay. okay, everyone. Have a good Wednesday. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful sharing and questions today. Really, really awesome. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again, Carlita. My pleasure, Donald. Have a good week. Thank you. See you next time.